Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The impeachment trial of President Donald Trump is finally over, and to nobody's surprise, the president was acquitted of the charges against him pretty much along party lines. There was one exception. Mitt Romney voted with all of the Democrats to convict Trump on the abuse of power article. He voted to acquit him on the obstruction of Congress, but he was able to uh, make one vote against the president. But look, this whole thing obviously came down along party lines. I don't really think either party gave a damn about whether Trump was guilty or innocent. I think all of the decisions, both to impeach Donald Trump and then whether to convict him or acquit him, I think these are all calculated political decisions that are being made by the parties, and it should annoy Americans that this political theater is going on, that all of this is about uh, gamesmanship and and, and partisan, uh, you know, posturing for an election that's coming up. Uh, Personally, I don't think the Democrats made the case to impeach the president or, you know, that, that he should be removed for office, but I don't think they even cared. I just think that this was a democratic strategy, but I do believe had they made a stronger case, given how popular President Trump is at the moment among Republicans, I don't think they would have removed him from office. Now, if Trump was less popular, if he was, you know, unpopular, let's say, if the economy looked weak to the Republicans, if the stock market was much lower, then it might have been a different story. I mean, if the Republicans believed it was better to get rid of Trump and to have Pence at the top of the ticket in 2020, then maybe they would have voted uh, to convict him. And, you know, if Trump wasn't so unpopular among the Democrats, who knows? Maybe some of the Democrats uh, might not have voted uh, to convict him. But everything really went down along party lines because this is all posturing for the 2020 election. Trump is going to be able to say that the whole thing was a farce, it was a a witch hunt, it was a fraud, that he did nothing wrong, and the Democrats are going to be able to claim that he did do something wrong, that he was impeached, but for political reasons, the Republicans overlooked the abuse of power and the obstruction of Congress and acquitted him anyway because they are Republicans and they're loyal to their party, not to the Constitution. So this is all a bunch of political theater, but the real theater was taking place last night when the president delivered his State of the Union address. And, you know, I don't really think they should even call these State of the Union addresses anymore because there was nothing that the president said that reflected on the State of the Union. I mean, this was a political speech. It was, and now, of course, you know, this has been going on for a while. Trump didn't invent the State of the Union as a political speech. Maybe he's perfected it. 
I think he delivered a very good speech if the goal is to jumpstart your campaign, right? If you look at it from that perspective, was it good politics? Was it good theater? Then yes. But if you want to look at the speech as a reflection on the State of the Union, was Trump accurately reporting to the Congress and to the American people about the State of the Union? He was not. There was nothing that he said that reflected the true state of this union. Everything he talked about was pure fantasy. The whole thing was a bunch of nonsense. None of it was true. I mean, some of it was true, but then, of course, he would embellish it and ex exaggerate it. In fact, you know, it reminded me of the old Winston Churchill quote. If you paraphrase it, never has uh, so much been exaggerated to so many by just one man, right? The whole talk, I mean, I really do wish that the State of the Union, as described, was accurate. I mean, I think it would be great if Donald Trump actually achieved what he is taking credit for having achieved. But none of that is is true. And also, if you want to look at this speech, did the president use the bully pulpit, right? Did he take advantage of being before Congress and being before the American people to try to nudge Congress to pass legislation that would be in the national interest, then the speech was a complete failure. He didn't talk about anything substantive as far as what he wanted to get Congress to do other than pass uh, mandatory uh, paid family leave. That's about it. So he came up with a new socialist program that he wants Congress to enact to basically force American employees to be compensated for their work in the form of paid leave, even if they would prefer some other form of compensation. Because I've talked about that before on this podcast. All employees have to cover their costs of employing them. So your productivity needs to cover the cost to the employer of paying you. And if the employer is forced to compensate you through paid leave, well, given that your productivity doesn't improve just because Congress passes a law, then the only way you can maintain your job is if you are paid less in another form. So maybe you receive lower monetary compensation or you have some other way that your compensation package is altered such that your employer can still afford to keep you employed and pay you based on the new rules that Congress has enacted. And of course, there will be a lot of people where the employers won't be able to uh, alter the compensation package. And so the result for those people will be that they've lost their job and they have a permanent vacation, right? Because now instead of getting a paid leave, they just don't have a job. And if you don't have a job, then there's no one to pay you when you take medical leave. But that's really the only thing that the president talked about that he wanted to get out of Congress. Now, if the president's description of the U.S. economy was accurate, which it is not. I mean, the president said that the U.S. economy was experiencing a economic boom, the likes of which the world has never seen before, right? Not just in America, but the world has never seen any country booming the way the United States is booming right now. Forget about the fact that we just got on Friday, and I talked about on a podcast, the GDP for the fourth quarter, which came in at 2.1%, and for the entire year, the economy grew at 2.3. What is so special about 2.3? I mean, first of all, Obama had many years uh, where the economy grew at 2.3. had many years where it grew higher than 2.3. The high water mark for the Trump presidency was 2.9. Well, that's the exact same high water mark that Obama had. So thus far, Trump has been president for three years, and we haven't seen a single year where he was able to have economic growth that beat the high water mark uh, for Obama. And again, we'll see what we get for 2020, but I think there's a good chance that for the entire four years of the Trump term, I think U.S. GDP 
will be slower than it was for Obama's second term. So there is nothing extraordinary about what's happening in America other than the amount of debt that we're running up. In fact, what is extraordinary is given how much money we've borrowed since Trump was president, that the GDP growth was so low that despite all of this stimulus, we couldn't buy more fake GDP growth than what we were able to, to purchase for all this debt. In fact, one of the other points that Trump made was that the years of economic decay are over, right? And if you remember during the campaign, Donald Trump accurately described America as a nation in decay, right? It was, a, it was in distress. We were a shadow of our former selves. And one of the, the main arguments that Trump made to show that we were a nation in decay was our persistent trade deficits, right? Which according to Trump, and I agreed with Trump, candidate Trump, that uh, persistent deficits year after year, decade after decade, had hollowed out American industry. Uh, we once dominated all these manufacturing industries, but after decades of neglect and big trade deficits, we were now a former, a shadow of our former selves. We were no longer an industrial power. And that was what Donald Trump promised to restore, right? America's industrial might, our prowess as a manufacturing export economy. He was going to change that. Well, now Donald Trump is claiming that we are no longer a nation in decay, that the years of decay are over. Well, today we got the trade deficit for December and it came out a little bit higher than what was expected. They were looking for a $48.2 billion deficit. We got 48.9 and we did upwardly revise or we made the prior month's deficit even bigger than it was. It was 43.1 billion and now we know it was 43.7 billion. But we also have now the data for the entire year. And last year, 2019, was the first year in six years that the trade deficit actually went down. It was about 1.7% smaller than it was in 2018. But it went up in 2017 and it went up in 2018, the first two years that Trump was president. And in fact, if you look at the trade deficits over the three years that Trump has been in office, they are larger than they were the three years prior to his taking office. Now, if as a candidate, Donald Trump concluded that we were a nation in decay because we had these big trade deficits that he was going to fix as president. Well, if the trade deficits are now even larger than before he took office, how are the years of decay over? If the decay was a function of our trade deficits and our trade deficits are bigger now than they were before, then the rate of decay has increased. So all of this is make-believe. And in fact, you know, uh, making it worse, the reason that the trade deficit went down last year is not because we have this booming economy where the factories are humming like the president is pretending and we made all this stuff and we had a boom in our exports and because we exported a lot more, the trade deficit went down. No, no, no. What happened is imports went down. Why did imports go down? Well, because the president made imports more expensive for Americans by slapping tariffs on them. And so by making it more expensive to import stuff, we imported a little less stuff. And it's also possible that earlier in the year, uh, you know, importers, you know, rushed to front load some imports into 2018 to, to beat the tariffs. And so that might have skewed it a little bit, but it's all because of lower imports that were the result of the tariffs not a revigorated, re-energized manufacturing sector. In fact, Trump was talking about you know, manufacturing employment, all the jobs that he's being created. If you look at manufacturing jobs as a percentage of total employment, right? what percentage of Americans are working in manufacturing uh, relative to all the Americans that are working, that has actually declined since Trump took office. So manufacturing share of employment is lower now than it was before took off, Trump took office. So how is this a boom? In fact, one of the things that is booming 
and Trump talked about this, was women in the labor force. And Donald Trump talked about, you know, the high percentage of jobs that have been created since he took office and that the, you know, the majority of them, I forget the exact percentage, but it was pretty high percentage, have gone to women. And he thinks this is a great thing that he's creating all these jobs for women. Well, if he was creating a bunch of manufacturing jobs, men would be taking those jobs because by and large, manufacturing jobs are dominated by men. So the fact that so many of the jobs that Trump or that are being created during the Trump presidency are going to women is more proof that these are not manufacturing jobs. These are service sector jobs that women tend to dominate. But one of the things that Trump is overlooking is a lot of these jobs are going to women who would prefer not to have them, right? There are a lot of married women with kids who don't want to work, but they have no choice because the economy is weak. Their husbands don't make enough money to support them and their children, so they are reluctant entrants into the labor force. Now, I know not all women, right? There are some career women who have great careers and they really enjoy working and they prefer to be in these stimulating careers rather than just, you know, changing diapers and, and stuff like that. But there are a lot of women that are working as cashiers, you know, that have very boring, tedious jobs and they would prefer not to have them. They would, be, they would prefer to be at home raising their children, but they don't have that choice. They don't have the luxury of that choice anymore because economic circumstances are such that they have to go and bring home the bacon. They can't stay home and, and cook it. But if the economy really were as good as Donald Trump claims, which of course it's not, but if it were, then why isn't Donald Trump calling on Congress to cut spending? to balance the budget or at least reduce the size of the budget deficits. I mean, think back to uh, State of the Union addresses of the past that were delivered by Republicans, where they are upset at Congress for passing these budgets that are gushing red ink, right, for having to raise the debt ceiling, challenging Congress. Don't send me more of these big deficits, right? Cut something, right? Balance the budget. There was none of that. The president spoke for what, about 90 minutes. And not once did he mention the deficits, the national debt. He is talking to Congress. He should be holding Congress accountable in front of the American people for their profligacy. Yes, President Trump is signing all of these deficits. He's not vetoing them, but at least he could have pretended that he didn't want to sign them, but he's got no choice. He didn't want to shut down the government, but why not challenge the Republicans and the Democrats to do something about the debt? If the economy is booming, the likes of which it's never boomed before, this is the time to tackle the debt. Because if you can't tackle the debt when the economy is the best it's ever been, well, then when are you going to tackle it? I mean, obviously, when you're in recession, you can't do anything. In fact, the deficits are getting bigger during a recession. So you have to bring them down uh, when the economy is growing. And if it's growing, the likes of which the world has never seen, if this is the greatest economic boom in the history of the world, can't we do something about the debt? I mean, isn't there one single government program that the president doesn't like? Isn't there something he'd like to see eliminated? Some agency, some department? Can't he just, you know, challenge Congress to cut something? No. 90 minutes, no cuts for anything, no talk about the deficit. All he talked about is the money he's spending, right? The president bragged about the billions or trillions that he spent on national defense, on buying new weapons that we probably didn't even need, but we certainly can't afford. But he's proud that we spent trillions of dollars on new weapons. He's also proud that he launched a brand new uh, 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 armed service, the Space Force. God knows how much money the Space Force is gonna end up costing us. Clearly we're broke. We can't afford uh, the Space Force. We don't need a Space Force, yet we have a Space Force. This is something that Donald Trump is proud to have accomplished, growing government even more. And then, of course, he talked about 
how he'll protect Social Security. He's going to protect Medicare, right? No one's ever going to cut that. He's the big defender of entitlement programs, doesn't want to cut anything there. He even defended Obamacare. Now, of course, he didn't call it Obamacare, but he said that we will fight to protect your rights to buy insurance, even if you have a pre-existing condition, that we will never allow insurance companies to actually sell you insurance based on your risk profile. You can wait until you're sick and then you can buy insurance at the same rate as if you bought it while you were still healthy. This is what Trump wants to protect, right? That is the very essence of Obamacare and Donald Trump has now embraced that. Right? So he's embracing Social Security, Medicare, Obamacare. At the same time, he's saying that we don't want socialism. America will never be a socialist country. Well, it already is, thanks to guys like him, because he is embracing all of this socialism. What we actually need right, to fix our health care is capitalism. But Trump doesn't want capitalism in America. He just wants his own brand of socialism rather than Bernie Sanders' brand of socialism. But we've already lost the battle. In fact, it's obvious that we really just have two parties, or we've always had two parties, but we have one party that's all about big government, big budget deficits, big trade deficits, right? Cheap money, right? The president wants the Federal Reserve to print money, keep interest rates artificially low, monetize the debt. So you want easy money, money printing, uh, Big government, which also means big taxes, right? The president has reduced taxes somewhat, but they're still high in the scheme of things. And of course, we have new tariffs, which are also taxes. So we have one party that stands for big government, lots of government spending, lots of taxes, money printing, all sorts of rules and regulations on business, right? And then we have the other party that stands for socialism, which is basically the same thing. I mean, we're completely screwed here thanks to Trump now and the direction that he has pushed the uh, Republican Party. I mean, the party of Ronald Reagan is completely dead. I mean, Reagan was a hard money guy. Reagan was a gold standard guy. He, you know, he was, uh, you know, uh, patting Paul Volcker on the back uh, for the high interest rates that we had early in his term and the recession that that brought about. So he was for sound money. He wanted to cut government spending. He kept challenging Congress to cut government spending. They never did it, but at least he pretended that at least he wanted it. Uh, Trump doesn't want any of that. Trump wants more government. He wants bigger government. When he was a candidate, he said he wanted lower trade deficits and lower budget deficits. In fact, he talked about completely paying off the national debt over eight years instead of just running off the charts and not a peep. Not a word, not a sound of warning. Trump couldn't care less about how much debt the economy is taking on. All he cares about is the stock market. He talked about it. He even exaggerated the size of the gains. I think he said it was up 70% since he was elected. I think true return, I think, is maybe 60%. But he was talking about everybody's 401ks and how much money people are making in the stock market. But when he was a candidate, right, and I talked about this, he said it was a big, fat, ugly bubble. Look, the, the Trump economy is the Obama economy. It's just a continuation of everything that was happening when Obama was president. It is the bubble getting bigger, fatter, and uglier. The same trends are in place. Yes, unemployment is coming down uh, since Trump uh, has been elected, but it was coming down for all the years before Trump was elected. It's the same uh, trajectory and it's coming down for the same reasons. And of course, when Donald Trump was a candidate, he said the unemployment numbers were fake anyway. Well, they're still fake. It's the same government that's coming out with the numbers now. Well, if they were fake when Obama was president, well, they're fake now that Trump is president. If they're not fake now, then they weren't fake then, right? I mean, and the GDP growth is really no different uh, today under Trump than it was under Obama. It's the same slow growth. He claims that the, the years of slow growth are over. No, they're not. We're still in them. Only thing that's changed is in order to get this slow economic growth, we've borrowed even more money. We've taken on even more stimulus. The Fed is cutting rates under Trump. We got three rate cuts in 2019. The Fed has gone back to quantitative easing under Donald Trump. And Trump likes it. 
Trump says we want more. Yet when he was a candidate, he criticized the Fed for quantitative easing and artificially low interest rates. He said they were doing political things simply to benefit Obama, to help get him reelected, but that beneath the surface of this bubble was a hollowed out nation in decay. Well, beneath the surface of the even bigger bubble that we have on his watch is a nation that's even further in decay, where the industry is even further hollowed out. The only real difference is Republicans are more optimistic. Small businesses that are run by Republicans are more optimistic because they believe all this nonsense. The whole nation is delusional and they believe that we've had substantive change when we haven't had any at all. Now, we're going to wake up from this delusion. I mean, we've been delusional in the past, whether it was in the dot-com bubble or the real estate bubble. We're in a much bigger bubble now, so the delusion is bigger. It's affecting a lot of people. But when it wears off, you know, whether it happens before this election or after, uh, we are going to have a massive recession, and it's all going to get blamed on Trump and what Trump stands for, on capitalism, on free markets or on deregulation, on tax cuts. And it was because uh, George Bush embraced a bubble and claimed that the economy was great and all the Republicans rallied around him and everyone on Wall Street rallied around Bush when we had a phony economy that I called out every step of the way. When that thing finally popped, the Republicans had no credibility and we got Barack Obama, right? Well, this bubble is much bigger and it's going to burst on Trump's watch, whether it bursts before he's reelected or after. So either way, Trump's going to be the fall guy. The Republicans in capitalism are going to get the blame and we're going to have a socialist president, whether it's Sanders right, in 2021 or AOC in 2025 or somebody like her. That is where we're going. And the reason we're going there is because of all these lies, because everybody wants to believe that the economy is great just because we have a Republican president. Well, it's not great, right? It wasn't great when Bush was president. It was a bubble. And now it's just a bigger bubble that Trump is president. Now, another thing about that State of the Union address, it was very well, I guess, produced. I mean, he had all these uh, heartfelt moments. He brought a 100-year-old uh, Tuskegee Airman up there, an uh, African-American guy. Looked pretty good for 100. Really didn't look much over 80. But he was there, and they had some other people. There was some young uh, African-American girl and her mom. Uh, the president was giving out some kind of scholarship to her to go to college or something. Again, more government money, more socialism, as the president is calling out Venezuela socialism. Venezuela, no, we don't want socialism in Venezuela. It's bad for Venezuela. And then he turns around and advocates socialism for the United States while he's pretending that we don't want socialism, that's exactly what he wants. He just doesn't want to call it by its name, but he knows that socialism has a lot of appeal to voters, right? Not the word socialism, but everything that the socialists stand for, which is free stuff from government. He wants to give out free stuff too. That's how he wants to get reelected by promising something for nothing. He just doesn't want to call what he's doing socialism. He wants to label what Sanders wants to do as socialism even though it's basically the same thing, just uh, to a greater degree. Although I did uh, appreciate uh, the um, Congressional Medal of Freedom for Rush Limbaugh. I mean, I, I really did like seeing Rush get some type of recognition. Again, I don't agree with everything Rush says, but I think Rush has been a, a very strong advocate for a lot of the principles that I do believe in, not all the principles. In fact, I never was on uh, Rush Limbaugh's show. He did interview me one time for his newsletter. So I did have a nice talk with him. Uh, and I have met him a couple of times. So, you know, I've always liked Rush. I used to listen to Rush myself uh, during the Clinton years when I was uh, when I was in my 20s. And so I do think he's made a, a, a positive impact on a lot of people. I think a lot of people probably uh, have been educated uh, not to be liberal, uh, to learn more about uh, capitalism and, and, and the freedom. Uh, you know, even though, I don't, again, I don't agree with everything that Rush says, but I think on balance, he's been a very a positive force. I know that in doing that, he's, uh, you know, uh, guarded a lot of enemies on the left. And I was very sad to hear 
of his uh, diagnosis of uh, late stage lung cancer. I know how difficult that is. That's how my father died. Uh, he had lung cancer. And, you know, judging by the way he looked last night, I wouldn't imagine that he has too much longer uh, to live. Uh, hopefully I'm wrong and maybe, you know, he's obviously going to get better medical care than my father got in a U.S. prison uh, or a prison hospital. So I'm sure uh, that Rush Limbaugh will have the best medical treatment uh, that he can buy. And so hopefully uh, he'll be able to uh, have uh, some more time. Uh, but I do appreciate the fact that, you know, they gave him that that medal uh, yesterday. I, you know, I I think it was deserved. I do think, though, politically, again, it was more good theater for the president. What I think is very uh, telling, though, is that when um, Limbaugh made this announcement, I forget when it was a day, you know, a day ago or just maybe the maybe it was the day before the State of the Union or two days before he made the announcement uh, that he had this, uh, this disease and his diagnosis. And there was a lot of jubilation and celebration uh, from people on the left. They, they were so happy uh, to hear this good news, right, that, that um, Rush Limbaugh was dying, right, that he had a terminal disease and that he was going to die. And they thought, oh, this is, this, this is it. I mean, this is, this is justice, right? He deserves it. You know, this is great, good riddance. The world's going to be a better place without Rush Limbaugh, right? I couldn't have happened to a better person. I mean, they're really excited and they're happy uh, that, that this is happening. I think that that really is disgusting. I mean, look, I know that you don't have to go out and, and, and say great things about somebody, uh, you know, after they die. And first of all, he's not even dead yet. He's still alive. Uh, but I know there are people who, you know, don't want to speak ill of the dead. And, and, and look, if somebody was, if you didn't like somebody, you don't have to go out of your way to pretend that they were a good person after they die. But you don't want to express uh, happiness over the fact that they are dying or maybe that they've already died because they deserve to die because you disagreed with their politics, right? I mean, could you imagine what would have happened had the situation been reversed, because there was really very little in the way of the media covering the fact that so many uh, liberals were jumping up for joy on Twitter about uh, this, you know, bad news for Rush Limbaugh. Right? Imagine if some liberal talk show host uh, or just some leading uh, left-wing advocate uh, had made a similar announcement that he was suffering from late-stage lung cancer. Right? And if conservatives had expressed the same type of sentiment as liberals are expressing about Rush Limbaugh. Could you imagine? This would have been a huge story. I mean, first of all, their Twitter accounts probably would have all been suspended immediately for tweeting out stuff like that. But it would be a major news story about how mean-spirited and how heartless these conservatives are, right? Because here they are expressing joy right, about somebody having a terminal disease, the fact that somebody's going to die, right, it would have been used as even more proof, right, of just how evil the conservatives are, how they're a bunch of bad, mean people. And this proves it, the fact that they're so excited and happy that somebody who they disagree with politically uh, has a terminal disease, right? But of course, none of that is happening because the people who are celebrating are, are Democrats. Now, I'm not saying that all of the liberals are celebrating. I'm sure that this is a small uh, part of the overall, uh, you know, Americans out there who are liberal. But the fact that it's there, I mean, if there was one single conservative who had one little tweet, right, about expressing joy over uh, somebody who was liberal who got cancer, right, again, that would have been enough to make the national news. So, but these uh, tweets, this celebration isn't a story at all. And again, that's just the double standard that we have regarding uh, the left and the right in the mainstream media in the United States. And I've spoken about that on many occasions using other uh, examples. Now, after the president finished his uh, State of the Union uh, campaign speech, we did get the campaign reaction, very, very weak reaction. Gretchen Whitmer uh, delivered the Democratic response, really, really a very, very weak uh, response, uh, which, you know, I'm happy to see. In fact, I think the main thing she said, her main policy prescription 
was raising the minimum wage, right? She says, if we could just raise the minimum wage, we'll lift millions and millions of people out of poverty. Well, if it was that easy to lift people out of poverty, just had to raise the minimum wage, well, gee, it'd be easy. Nobody would be in poverty. Just keep raising the minimum wage. The reality, of course, that Gretchen does not understand is that every time you raise the minimum wage, you trap even more people in poverty. One of the main reasons so many people are impoverished is because the government took employment uh, away as an option for them. They raised the bottom bar of the employment ladder beyond their reach, and now they're stuck in poverty. And what she wants to do is raise the bar even more. See, now what would have been really good if Donald Trump took advantage of his presidency to call on the abolition of the federal minimum wage? How about a president who claims he doesn't believe in socialism advocate for the free market? Because if you believe in capitalism, you believe in price discovery. You believe that the markets should set prices. That includes the price of labor. See, if you're a socialist, you don't believe in the market. You believe that government should pick the right price. And that's what's happening when you advocate for a minimum wage. The concept of a minimum wage is a socialist concept. What you're saying is the free market doesn't work. It's not setting the right wage. We want government to determine what the wage should be, right? The price of unskilled labor. But of course, if you understand free market economics, you know whenever the government does that, if they set the price too high, which of course they inevitably do when you're talking about a minimum, the result is unemployment. That's Econ 101. Unfortunately, the president didn't take that course. And neither did, neither did anybody in the, you know, most people in the electorate or none of the candidates on the Democratic side. But the other uh, response, there was one, not an official response, but a campaign response. I watched Bernie Sanders uh, critique and, you know, some of the things that Sanders says, I agree with, you know, I like that the, the economy is not nearly as strong as the, as the president pretends. I mean, Bernie Sanders basically says, look, if you're a billionaire, yeah, the economy is booming. But if you're an ordinary guy who works for wages, if you're in the middle class, then it's not, which is true. The economy is not booming. It's just not for the reasons that Sanders believes. And his prescription uh, to fix the problems that he is correctly identifying exists in some cases, but his prescription will make all those problems worse. Just raising taxes on the rich and giving out free education and free health care and government jobs and all the things that Sanders wants to do are going to make the very people that Sanders wants to help uh, even poorer than they are now. But the president is going to help Sanders and his ilk advance this agenda if we continue to celebrate a phony economic boom and claim credit for having created it. Because it's only a matter of time until the boom goes bust. And it will be a worse crisis than the one that we had in 08, a much deeper recession. And the Republicans are going to take the blame. And obviously, the Democrats are going to be able to hold themselves up once again as the solution. Now, while I'm on the subject of politics, too, I got to talk about the Iowa caucuses. What a what a disaster that was. I mean, what a show. Uh, the the uh, results are normally released uh, pretty much right away on uh, two, on Monday evening. That's when they have the caucuses. And we should have had a winner announced, uh, you know, late Monday night, maybe 11 o'clock, midnight at the latest East Coast time. Right. There should have been uh, a winner. But instead, we had to wait, I think, really until today to find out who won. And I'm looking right now and with 86 percent reporting the winner is Pete Buttigieg, right? He's got 26.7% of the vote. And Bernie Sanders is a close second with 25.4%. And they each walk away with 11 delegates. In third place is Elizabeth Warren. She's got five uh, delegates, 18.3%. A disappointing fourth place, Joe Biden. Right, the favorite, the former vice president, 15.9% of the vote. He comes out with zero delegates. Right? Uh, and Amy Klobuchar came in fifth. She got 12.1%, zero delegates. But really, the three tickets coming out 
of uh, Iowa are Buttigieg, Sanders, and Warren uh, going into the first primary in New Hampshire. But obviously, if you look at these vote totals, if you add up the Sanders and the Warren votes, which are the far left Democratic Socialist votes, that's barely over 40 percent, right? Maybe 45 percent, 55 percent of the vote went to Buttigieg, Biden, and Klobuchar, right? Those are the more moderate. And of course, this is all a question of degree, because if you actually look at what Buttigieg is advocating, there's nothing moderate about this guy. If Warren and Sanders weren't in the race, he would be a far left-wing candidate. It's only because you're comparing him uh, to Sanders and Warren that he looks moderate, but he's not. None of these guys are moderate. Maybe Klobuchar maybe would count as the most moderate of the bunch, but they're all far left. It's just that they're not as far left as a Sanders and Warren. But what do you expect when Donald Trump, the head of the Republican Party, is so far to the left? Right? He, you know, he, he, the whole political spectrum has shifted dramatically to the left. And the most frustrating part about it is the Republicans are happy. The conservatives are happy to have completely surrendered all of their principles. Right? And you know, Donald Trump talks a good game when he's not advocating socialist programs, right? He, he, he's a good speaker, uh, but that's not enough. And in fact, that, that, that is going to be the undoing of the Republican Party because they put so much stock in a false prophet. And when everything comes crashing down, as I said, it's going to completely discredit the brand and what the brand in theory stands for. In practice, of course, it doesn't stand for that at all. But Capitalism is always going to get blamed for the disasters that uh, socialists create in the name of capitalism. Oh, I forgot to mention, too, Trump, when he was delivering his State of the Union address, completely and expectedly exaggerated the impact of the two trade deals. He really talked about the USMCA with Mexico and Canada, uh, the new NAFTA, basically, and his trade deal, his phase one trade deal with China, as if they were the greatest trade deals in the history of the country, as if we had really made some substantive progress. We completely reversed the bad trade deals of the past, and we've got these incredible trade deals now. Again, none of this is true, but this is all good theater. This is Donald Trump the reality show star, except the reality show is in the White House. And, and he is playing uh, this as a PR game. And his goal right now is to get reelected. And the way Trump gets reelected is by pretending that we have a booming economy, that we have the greatest economy in the history of America because of him. And if we have the greatest economy that the world has ever seen, well, he must be the greatest president that the world has ever seen. And if he's the greatest president that we've ever had, then clearly we should reelect him. Why would you not want to reelect the greatest president in history? In fact, it's because he's so great that the Democrats tried to impeach him. That's why they wanted to get rid of him, because they knew how great he was. They knew that they could never beat him because he was so great and because they don't care about the country. They just care about themselves. They wanted to impeach Trump so that Mike Pence would be the president who was not nearly as great as Donald Trump, and it would be a lot easier right, to beat Mike Pence in 2020 in the election than Donald Trump. And I also wanted to mention on Sanders, about, I don't know, a couple of days before the Iowa caucus, he put on his website and announced his, his new plan for the disabled and, and, and disabled rights that he wants to create, right? the rights for the disabled. And, of course, Democrats always like to create rights, but they're not rights. They're actually special privileges masquerading as rights. There is no such thing as disability rights, right? You do not get additional rights if you become disabled. Disabled people have the same rights that anybody else has, right? The disability doesn't impact your rights, right? You don't get new rights because you become disabled. You have the same rights that you had when you were abled if you become disabled. They're individual rights, and all individuals have the same rights regardless of their disabilities or any disabilities they may have. Now, to the extent that you're going to have some special privilege that is going to be granted to you by government, it is not a right. 
right? It is a privilege that exists at the expense of somebody else. And so all the things that Sanders is enumerating as his rights are in effect privileges. But the other problem with what Sanders wants to do is that it is a disaster, not only for the economy, but it's a particular disaster for the disabled people living in the economy because he wants to force much greater accommodations, right? He wants to really expand the Americans with Disability Act, which was a terrible act passed by Bush Sr., right? Bush 41. One of the worst things that he did was the Americans with Disability Act. And I've talked about all the frivolous lawsuits uh, that have resulted from this act. But Sanders wants to take it up many, many notches and force businesses to make far more expensive accommodations uh, to, you know, to meet the special privileges of the disabled. And, and, and the cost of this would drive many, many small businesses out of business. Uh, it would cause a lot of people to lose their jobs. It would cause everybody uh, to pay higher prices. Even if you still have a job, uh, you're going to have to pay higher prices because the cost of all these accommodations is going to flow through to the consumers. And of course, you know, one of the the highlights of what Sanders is proposing, right? He wants to get rid of the exemption that allows employers to hire the disabled and pay them less than the minimum wage because they're able to adjust their pay to their lower productivity because they are disabled. And as a result of being disabled, they are not as productive as other workers who don't have the disability. But if you take away the ability of the employer to pay a sub-minimum wage, well, then none of these disabled people are going to get hired. So basically, what Sanders wants to do is make it so people with disabilities can't get jobs. He wants to turn them all into wards of the state. So they are forever beholden to the logressive government. Basically, the taxpayer is going to be subsidizing the disabled forever, which is a way of buying their votes and making sure that they always vote Democrat because once the Democrats get you dependent on a check, well, then you're going to vote to get that check. And all they have to do is say, hey, this Republican, vote for him and you're going to lose your check. And the check's the only thing standing between you and poverty. Well, then you keep voting Democrat. That is what Democrats do best. They destroy all of your hope and all of your dreams, they completely uh, incapacitate you and they make you dependent on government. And then once you are dependent on government, well, then you keep voting for the government that's, that's supporting you, right? They, they break your leg and then they give you a crutch and they claim credit for that crutch. And they say, see, if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't have a crutch and you couldn't hobble around. But if it wasn't for the government, you wouldn't need the crutch because you could walk. You wouldn't have to hobble because they never would have broken your leg in the first place. Well, I don't want to uh, finish up this podcast, though, without talking about the market, because we have had some rallies uh, in the stock market. We've had a couple of strong up days since my last podcast. In fact, the Dow Jones was up almost 500 points today, up 483 points. We're now back above 29,000. We closed at 29,290 not a new record. We did hit a record close for the S&P today. It was up 37 points. It's not a record high, but it was a record close. The Nasdaq composite up 40 points. It did hit a new all-time record high today uh, at 95.74. We closed at 95.08. Russell 2000 up again. Not a record. Nowhere near a record. Not even a new 52-week high there. I think the catalyst this morning some news that I think some somebody in China might have a cure or something like that uh, for the coronavirus, and that sparked a rally. And at this point, the S&P has recovered everything that it lost uh, since we got the, you know, the scare regarding the coronavirus. And, you know, again, I don't think that it's the virus that is the reason that the market was going down. I think it was the excuse. The market was looking for an excuse to sell off and the coronavirus provided a pretty convenient excuse. But I think the market is going down. I mean, I think the good news is out uh, now that you have uh, the trade deal done. Uh, in fact, now that Trump has been acquitted uh, from the impeachment, I mean, that, you know, the markets obviously knew that was coming. But 
I think there's a lot of negative things that the markets have been ignoring uh, and now they can start to focus on them. I mean, today there was some positive economic news that came out. I mean, nothing was uh, extreme, but there was some news that was you know a little bit better than had been expected. In fact, I think the one uh, economic number that came out today that was quite a bit better than was expected was the ADP employment report. Remember, we get that every Wednesday of a week where we get the official non-PARM report uh, on Friday. So the consensus was for 154,000 jobs, which would have been a big reduction of the 202,000 jobs that we uh, that were created in December. That was revised down uh, to 199. But instead of getting 154, we got 291,000 jobs, far more uh, than the markets had been expecting. And I think that acted, again, as a catalyst uh, to feed the false narrative of a strong economy. I think that following, you know, the president's State of the Union address, I think the market was pumped up and this helped to do that. And I think that, you know, the, the, the markets were off to a strong start based on the, uh, the news about the coronavirus but, you know, it wasn't all good news. The Ford Motor Company came out with earnings that disappointed investors. The stock was down almost 10% on the day. It closed down 9.48%, $8.31. The 52-week high uh, on the stock is about 10 and a half. But this stock was over $15 in 2014. And in fact, they reported a fourth quarter loss that was so large that it wiped out all of their profits for the year. So the Ford Motor Company actually lost money in 2019. So if we have such a booming economy, how is it the Ford Motor Company couldn't even make a profit during this economic boom? In fact, I mentioned earlier when I was talking about the State of the Union, why didn't the president try to use the booming economy as a catalyst to challenge Congress to dealing with the deficit because after all if you're not going to tackle the deficit when the economy is booming when are you going to do it well the point i forgot to make was if the economy was booming we wouldn't have a booming deficit because booming economies in and of themselves reduce deficits because they generate tax revenue because the booming economy is producing more income which is being taxed and so the treasury is flush with all these tax revenues and because the economy is so good government safety nets they're not spending as much money and so spending goes down revenues go up and so the deficits automatically go down when you actually have a booming economy the fact that deficits are going up is more evidence that it's not a booming economy because if it was booming the deficits would be going down because they're going up the boom is simply a figment of trump's imagination and obviously the imaginations of other republicans and in the imagination of investors now general motors also reported earnings that were a little bit better than estimates so that stock was up two percent on the day or just under but still i mean general motors is about 35 dollars a share that's about where it was six seven years ago we've seen no appreciation at all in either of those two stocks the only car company that we have that's actually going up is tesla and of course tesla is a bubble in and of itself in fact tesla almost got to a thousand dollars a share yesterday it got as high as $968.99. And that was within about five minutes of the close. And then it sold off. And then it got killed by about 17% today. I think today is the biggest one-day drop in the history of Tesla. So it closed at 734. That's what, better than 20% below where it was just before the close five minutes before the close yesterday so technically i guess it's already in a bear market one day after hitting a record high but i mean look who knows where this stock is going in the short run i would say that there's still a lot of support right now around 600 uh which you know is a pretty big retracement from 968 uh, but who knows where this stock is going in the short run but it is clearly a bubble and you always have stuff like this going on uh during manias like the one we have now we have certain stocks that you know that are really the poster boys of the bubble and, and tesla is one of them and i don't care if elon musk is a genius and i don't care how great these cars are 
the company is not worth this price. And I'm, I've heard all these bullish stories about how they're going to dominate the electric car business. Look, they don't have a monopoly on electric cars. They don't have a patent. Look, I've got an, an all-electric Jaguar. It's a nice car. I've got a hybrid Porsche. There are all sorts of companies out there that can make electric cars, right? So they're not going to have this industry to themselves. <laughs> but if you look at the, the valuation, I mean, Tesla, even after the drop, today it's still the second largest automobile company in the world. It passed uh, Volkswagen, which is now number three. It hasn't quite hit Toyota. Now, maybe it will beat Toyota and maybe it won't. I don't know. Again, we might have already seen the high or we could take out a thousand. There is no way to know uh, how big this bubble is going to get. The one thing that you do know is that it will pop because all bubbles pop. It's only a question of time. But, you know, some of the other uh, poster boys, look what happened. Uh, you know, we had Peloton came out with earnings after the close. Right? This is another one of these uh, fashion stocks. They make these athletic bikes. And this company actually beat uh, the estimate, right? They were supposed to lose 65.9 million on the quarter, and they only lost 28.4 million. So they didn't lose as much as uh, the analysts had uh, forecast, yet the stock is still getting beat up after hours. But I think the bigger story is going to be this company, Casper Sleep. If you don't know, uh, if you're not familiar with Casper, uh, they make these beds. Uh, mattresses rather they started out they just had one type of foam mattress and it folded up into a box all right and they would ship you this thing for free and you know the whole mattress would would just roll up into a box uh but they've now they've expanded they have i think three different kinds of mattresses some of them actually have box springs in them and they sell some other things uh, but the one thing they're not doing is making a profit and this company at one point raised money with a valuation of 1.1 a billion dollars. So they were a unicorn, right? A private company that was had a market value of over a billion. They had some flashy Hollywood investors who got in in some of the earlier rounds. Ashton Kusher was one of the investors. I forget who else uh, got involved early on in this company. Uh, but now they're going public. And initially they were looking to price the stock somewhere between 17 and 19. And today they announced that they're having to lower that to 12 to 13, who knows if they'll even get it off at that price, but assuming they get the IPO off at that new lower range, that 12 to $13 level, uh, you're talking about a 500 million market cap, which is less than half of what it was valued at the last private round. And of course, again, the company is losing money. They're spending a lot of money on advertising uh, and they're, so they're losing money. And who knows if this company is actually going to make it. Uh, there's a lot of competition out there. Uh, you know, and it's largely a commodity type business. I mean, people are selling mattresses. So they've got a lot of these companies now that are selling mattresses directly to the consumer. And of course, there's all sorts of department stores. Many of them are going out of business. Look at Macy's. You know, Macy's is shuttering more stores. That was just announced. They're laying off more people. Uh, but a lot of these uh, companies, as they're going out of business, right, they can cut the price of their mattresses. So, you know, there's a lot of competition in what is really a commoditized type business. And these small companies, you know, borrow lots of money. They have crazy valuations. But we'll see, because I think this IPO bubble busted uh, with WeWork. And so uh, this could be telling to see what happens uh, to Casper. You know, meanwhile, the price of gold continues to hold up very well. Gold was up a few bucks today. We closed at 1557. But you know, ever since we broke above 1550, it's been holding us support. I mean, if you look at the gold stocks, you wouldn't think that. You would think that it's still resistance. Uh, gold stock investors don't even realize that we've taken out the 1550 resistance. And at this point, it's acting more as a support level uh, where I think we're going to blast off to new highs. Uh, but the gold stocks are still not capturing that potential. And again, I think people are still looking at the stock market, thinking it's going higher, uh, thinking Trump's a shoe in to be reelected, thinking there's no inflation. Uh, and so they're not looking at gold. They're not seeing the potential in this rally and they're not buying gold stocks. They're not buying them yet, but they will.
Well, that should wrap up this podcast. Just want to let everybody know I am leaving tomorrow morning for Orlando, where I'll be participating in the Orlando Money Show. Hopefully, I'll be able to see uh, some of the podcast listeners at the show. I am going to be speaking a couple of times tomorrow, kind of late afternoon. And then on Friday morning, I'll be there again. We're going to have a booth at the Orlando Money Show, so you'll be able to meet uh, some of the brokers from uh, Europe Pacific Capital. We'll be there. I am taking off kind of early. As soon as I finish talking, I think my, my talk on Friday goes from 11.15 to noon, and then I'm out of there because I've got my family with me, and we're going to spend a few days in Disney World. I won't be back in Puerto Rico until later Monday. So I'm not really sure if I'm going to do another podcast this week. I know we're going to have some big news. We're going to get the the non-farm payroll report on Friday. Potentially, if I have a little time in my hotel room, I may record something. But if I don't do anything until Tuesday, you know it's because I'm enjoying some time with my family in, uh, in Disney World. Meanwhile, before I go, later this evening, I am taping a segment for the Tucker Carlson Show, uh, which will air, I think, tomorrow night. So that'll be uh, Thursday while I'm in Orlando. They'll play that segment. It's going to be about the Fed. So we'll see. Anyway, so hopefully you'll get a chance to uh, watch me on that show on television. But if not, I'm sure we will record it and post a copy of it on my YouTube channel.